Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to Idle Chatter. This is the show from the Farm Machinery Digest and I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road in Hackettstown, New Jersey, Warren County, to places all around the world, which is kind of you know, really humbling for me to believe and I always say this, that the people around the world are listening to Idle Chatter this podcast and also visiting my website Farm Machinery Digest so I really want to thank you for that and always please know that I do not take any one of you for granted any one of you you listeners or visitors to the website is that I honor all of you and it's a blessing for you to be able to listen to this poor dry land farmer from New Jersey it's not a blessing to you it's a blessing to me I said that wrong right that's not that good I'm trying to be humble and I end up uh, messing that up well that's not a good way to start the show but anyway I think that you know what I meant so welcome once again and today is Monday February 25th and it is the Monday before Commodity Classic so I will be going to Commodity Classic I'll be leaving on Wednesday I'm flying out of Newark Airport to Orlando Florida and will be at Commodity Classic at the Firestone Ag booth and I will be there uh, Thursday Friday and Saturday the three days of the show I will probably leave the booth a little bit early on Saturday because I think I have a flight out about 2.30 in the afternoon. But the other days, I'll definitely be there all day. So if you have the opportunity, please stop by the Firestone Ag booth and just say hello. I would love to meet you. And also Brad Harris, the lead engineer from Firestone Ag, is going to be giving over the course of Commodity Classic, I think, uh, possibly five uh, little uh, seminars. He does an excellent job. They're usually like uh, 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minute seminars about tires. You do not have to have Firestone tires, though I think it would be a mistake not to, to come to the seminar, obviously. But uh, the thing is that the information that he's giving you is, is generic tire information. You could apply that to any brand of tire. And, you know, with the folks at Firestone, which I'm so you know grateful to be partnered with, share the same uh, edict that I do. They're cut from the same cloth and um, they want to educate the farmer. And all I ask is that when it comes time to buy tires, either spec them out on a new piece of equipment or on an older piece of equipment that you're retiring. I always use that term, retiring, because in the auto industry, we use the term repowering when you're putting a new engine, a different engine in the car. So retiring that you uh, look at the Firestone brand, and I could uh, echo that because Harvey Firestone was a farmer, and you're buying a tire from a, a farmer. And... Uh, all of their research is done at the Firestone Test Farm in Columbiana, Ohio. Real neat place. I've, the past two years, I filmed all my segments for the Successful Farming TV show there. So that's, uh, I'm very intimate with the facility. It's a great facility, about 400 acres, and uh, really neat. So listen, come by Commodity Classic. If you're at Commodity Classic, please come by and say hello, and I would love to shake your hand. Uh, learn about your farm or your ranch operation and if you have some pictures look at them and I just really uh, want to be able to connect with you so listen uh, we're gonna have a show today and it's a slippery subject and it is about engine oil 
and uh, so it's one of the topics I've wanted to discuss for quite some time, and probably later on, or maybe a month or so from now, or six weeks from now, whatever, there's no real time frame, is that I will do a, uh, a follow-up to this show on hydraulic fluid. There's too much content to put into uh, one show like this, and specifically, uh, you know, being an audio, being a radio type show, is that there's there's no visual uh, aids. So I have to be able to talk more and to try to explain something than, you know, the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. But anyway, what I would like to just share with you is I had a, a very blessed week, and it was blessed in the sense... Uh, that I heard from two people from the show. Now, that is not, I don't want you to think that that's a, a rare occurrence, but I got a very nice letter from Mr. Riley Lewis, and he owns Lewis Century Stock Farms in uh, LaGrange, in LaGrange, Indiana, which I know where, not where their farm is, but I know where LaGrange is. And what Riley wrote to me, and I'm not going to read you the entire letter, but he wrote, I am a dairy and crop farmer in LaGrange, Indiana, and I love the Idle Chatter podcast. I just started the podcast a few weeks ago, and I am rolling through the episodes. But as another listener mentioned, I didn't know how little I knew. And this is both exciting and yet overwhelming, as I try very hard not to suffer from NIH. Not invented here, so he listened to that show in the archives. So love finding out new ways to do things better, especially when it involves preventing future disasters. So basically, I feel like we are doing everything wrong on the farm and the shop. We only look at price and cut tons of corners, and fear that we will have a multitude of problems forming. And I'm going to stop his letter there. And the reason why I read this to you is that I wanted to give a shout out to Riley. But also, I wanted to say that in so many ways, and <clears throat> this is, a, this is a, a lonely occupation or a lonely profession. You know, over the years, I've written for so many magazines. I think I've written for 45 different magazine titles. Uh, car magazines, boating magazines, RV magazines, agricultural magazines, and you're doing the website and doing the TV show for Successful Farming and now doing my show to, on the internet radio here, the podcast. And what I mean by a lonely profession is that I'm not looking for any sympathy. But for instance, when I used to write for Hot Rod magazine years back, they would have approximately about a thousand, a thousand, uh, uh, they had probably a million and a half readers. Uh, let me clarify that. They had probably about a little bit more than a million. They bounced around a million subscribers. And then with the industry, they they have what they call pass-along readership. And the pass-along readership is that you leave the magazine in the coffee shop or the barbershop and someone else reads it. And, you know, you could put for, for three years, I was in every issue of Hot Rod Magazine as a contributor. And... Uh, so basically, you figure in three years, you had 36 million people, arguably, read what you wrote. And I know uh, that they did because they used to do an audit, and I think 97% of the people used to read my articles. So anyway, you have, whatever, 30 million, 10 million, 5 million people, and you hear no feedback from anyone. And uh, good, bad, or indifferent, and usually whatever feedback you do do get is uh, is basically somebody just uh, chastising you. But anyway, with very little to no feedback whatsoever, and then it makes you feel that you know, am I, am, what am I doing? Is it resonating with people? Do I think it works? And you know, do I think I should be writing this? Should I change it? And what have you? And why I was wanted to share Riley's letter with you is that it's my heartfelt desire to help the agricultural community and to know that there are many of you out there. Riley is not the only one, but he he, he wrote a letter to me about it and saying that he's he wants to, or not he wants to, he recognizes that the farm shop on his on his operation has the potential to make or break it financially and i applaud him for that and i applaud all the others that are listening to this show because in your own way you're recognizing that and i feel that i have an obligation to you my listeners and the people who visit the website to be able to help you to to look at your equipment 
and to realize that the best yields in the world, the best market prices in the world, can very easily be evaporated or erased by poor decisions in the farm shop. So the idea that that Riley is is working hard to implement a lot of the things that I represent on the show is is not tooting my own horn. What it basically is, it's a confirmation and, a, and an, an affirmation that I'm on the right course and I truly want to help the American farmer and rancher. That may not have come out right, but I hope that God willing you understand what I'm saying is that I don't want, I don't need a million people writing to me and I don't want anybody just, I, I don't want that. I want to know that I'm helping you. And the best letters basically are saying I implemented something and this worked and I saved some money or the equipment, my equipment, uh, is more reliable or runs better what have you that to me that's hitting the lottery so it makes me so happy so thank you riley for writing uh your letter to me and i'm going to open a dialogue with him right when i get back from commodity classic and i'm going to give him some some helpful hints and what he could do as far as he's concerned with fluid testing what have you and i know from his letter that all i got to do is steer him in the right direction and he'll take that baby home and make it work for him and the other person that I want to shout out to is Noah Frazier from Locking, Lockington, Victoria, Australia. And as I said last week, he is my he is my youngest reader. So Noah, please send me a picture. Send me a picture of yourself. Your daddy works at a uh, New Holland dealer. I uh, I know it's the rural group. I killed the name of the town the first time last week, so I'm not doing that again. That I massacred that. But, hey, Noah, send me a picture. Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Send me a picture standing next to a piece of farm equipment, either yours or at the dealership, a nice piece of New Holland, nice New Holland tractor combine, and hopefully it has Firestone tires on it. So send that over, Noah, and I'll, I'll post that on my website. He's my youngest listener that I'm aware of, 11-year-old Noah Frazier from Lockington, Victoria, Australia, and I know that he's just a great kid from what I heard, and I hope that the uh, what he listens to here, he'll be able to take and make a wonderful career for himself in agriculture. Of course, I know that his dad told me through correspondence that he loves machinery. But anyway, what we're going to talk about today is engine oil, and ironically, when Dave Frazier, Noah's dad, had contacted me, I already had planned to do this week's show about engine oil, and uh, he said to me, geez, you know, if you could ever do a show on, on engine oil, I would really appreciate that. And I said, you must be a mind reader, because that's what I had planned for this week. So that is what we're going to cover, and then I have a letter here, if I didn't lose it, okay, from a question for our special delivery segment at the end of the show, and it is from uh, author in Western Tennessee. And uh, we'll get to that. He's asking about water pumps. So, okay, so what we're basically going to do is I'm going to try to succinctly give you a lesson on oils. Now, there's a term, not a term, there's a name called a tribologist. And you would tend to think that it's somebody who works with blood or something. It's it's, But a tribologist is someone who studies lubricants. So you could actually go and get a, a degree in tribology. And it's a person who's makes the study of, of lubricants and oils, but basically they're lubricants. They don't necessarily have to be oils, but they are. So in full disclosure, I am not a degree tribologist. So I'm going to give you the engine, the hot rod farmer uh, version of tribology, which is basically all you need to know about engine oils and anything beyond that we're not going to get mired in chemistry and composition and molecular chains and what have you you know, whenever i write anything let's say like in successful farming or car magazines or something about oils i uh want to give the reader something that they could really you know take to the bank with them that makes sense and then you know ultimately and and i say this respectfully you know, ultimately you'll get somebody who's going to write in and the guy's a tribologist and he's going to tell you about tbn total base number and he's going to give you a molecular chain and everything and that and you know hey that that person is is, is well well educated and well versed on that and i'm not but you know the molecular chain from this oil versus that oil is not going to 
give you know put any money in your in your pocket as a farmer you need to understand how to be an educated consumer to buy the proper oils for your engines and you need to have a basic understanding of oils and how they interact with the engine and that's basically it you don't need anything more you're not going to be over there brewing up home brew of oil and that's what the oil companies are for and that's why they have people with phd in it and doc engineering degrees and laboratories to test all of this stuff we need to be able to be a consumer of the product and buy the right product as you would buy the right fertilizer for your farm well you would buy the right seed this time of year everybody's going through the seed catalogs and deciding what what hybrids what varieties they're going to plant in what fields where they're going to plant it you're going to go with triple stack you're going to go with what have you you're going to go with non-gmo you're going to go with a traded corn or a traded soybean so that's what we need to know about oil we need to know the traits of it we need to know uh you know, is it a triple stack, you know, or is it a BT corn? Is it a GMO corn? And then we can make the the right decision. So that's what we're going to cover today. So it's going to be a two parts, not two parts in two different weeks. It's going to be two parts in today's show. And the first part is I'm going to talk about viscosity of oils because that's always confusing. And the second part is going to be I'm going to discuss about synthetic versus mineral oils because you know you can get a bunch of farmers together in a coffee shop in the morning and if the topic of engine oil comes up forget about it you'll be there all day long and uh, it'd be worse than talking politics or religion because everybody's going to have their own opinion and they're going to argue back and forth about it as if it was the end of the world so uh so we're going to discuss that in the second part but the first part is going to be a basic overview of oils and viscosity you know oil brands there's probably two or three types of people farmers when it comes to engine oil you have the brand loyal guys you have the 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 cost guys whatever they could buy buy cheaply right and then you have another group that bounces back and forth and um feels that there should be a synthetic oil in the motor or an engine or mineral oil what have you so there's a couple of different groups of people but you know just like with farm equipment you get people that are true just very loyal to that color equipment and you and i all know what we mean in agriculture when we say color right that the brand of equipment and then you do have that to a certain extent with oil but what will you know what's confusing is that you could go to the store and you could look for let's say a 10w30 oil and you could find all different brands all different prices all different um compositions it could be a pure mineral oil it could be a pure it could be a pure synthetic oil or full synthetic is the word they would use not pure full synthetic and it could be a blend and then within those categories you'll see oils with all different pricing structures and everyone claims to be the best but the common denominator they use is that they say it meets a certain sae which is society of automotive engineers and api american petroleum institute test standard and those usually are going to be letters like like sj cd or sometimes they'll have a number with it rarely but usually it's a it's a combination of letters and what those letters will define is a test standard that was either created by the society of automotive engineers or the american petroleum institute for that oil and unless you know what the the protocol what the test standards are that really means nothing to you what is important is that you have to look in the owner's manual of that engine whether it's a a car a motorcycle a uh, irrigation pump or engine on a seed tender or tractor combine it's irrelevant is that you will need to look at the owner's manual but over the past 20 or 25 years it was probably 30 years now was also stamped or written on the oil fill cap and it says use oil that meets blah 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 standard or above now what's going to happen is with the sae and api standards uh specifically the oil the oil composition is usually an api standard and the viscosity the the numeric rating of the oil is usually the sae standard but you could find that to uh, to move around a little bit and have some overlap but what you need to understand is that as far as the letter codes are concerned 
SFJ, SFG, uh, the, the higher up in the alphabet. So C versus B is a newer composition oil. So the, the standard started with letter A and then they're working themselves up the alphabet. And if, and if that comes back again, then they'll add two letters. So it'll be AD or a, 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 AD or AG is in girl. So AG would be a different standard and a later standard than AC or AD. So the further up in the alphabet is the later standard. And for most part, unless you're running very, very old equipment, is that the standards are reverse compatible. So an oil standard that would work for a 2019 John Deere combine, if that standard, let's say, it's and it's superseded uh, older standard on your 2005 combine, is that that oil, the newer oil, will actually be backward compatible to the older application. So, and if you get very, very old, let's say 40 or 50 years old, then it it wouldn't be 100% backward compatible, but for the most part, you're not going to hurt anything. But most people are not farming with 40 or 50-year-old pieces of equipment, and some people are, and you could use uh, an oil with a modern standard with no real concern. It's a little bit different than it would be with diesel fuel because diesel fuel, even though you have no choice, you have to buy ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel, is that it, the process, that, as I said before in this show, the process to remove the sulfur, remove the lubricity. So that gave it, so you have to have a little bit of concern with an older engine, and even with a new engine that you need to do the use a lubricity additive but as far as oil is concerned they're backward compatible to for probably any type of equipment that you would be able to use on on your farm so now the oil will have a standard that it met and it'll also have a rating let's say 10w30 5w20 10w50 15w40 whatever it may be and this numeric rating is often very confusing because it is the viscosity of the oil. Now, most people think that viscosity is the thickness of the oil. That's very viscous. That's thick, the thickness of the oil. But the true definition of viscosity is a fluid's resistance to flow. So the viscosity defines the force required to move a given layer of fluid past another layer at a given speed and standard separation. So that is the technical definition of viscosity. So you're trying to have, and they actually have a laboratory test procedure that number is not defined, you know, just throwing darts at a wall, at a board, a cork board, and figure what the viscosity is. And they'll have let's say like a piece of glass, almost like a uh, slide that they do for blood testing, and they'll put the oil on there, and they'll take another piece of oil. This was the old procedure. They may have a more modern computerized one, and what they'll do is they'll have the oil on that also, and they want to try to slide it across one another. And then this is all laboratory testing, and the thing is that so the viscosity defines how much force is needed for that given layer of fluid to pass a pass another layer at a given speed and separation. So the higher the viscosity of the oil does not necessarily mean that it is thicker. In layperson's terms, when we pour it out of the can, it may look thicker or the bottle or the jug or or what have you. But we want to convince ourselves that it looks a little bit thicker, but it's really not a thickness measurement. So it's not like you're saying, well, it's, you know, it's that oil's thick like honey, my father used to say. He used to think that was good, but that was the old school mentality. And it's thick like honey. And then, so that is not the true indication of viscosity. It's a laboratory test of the fluid's ability to flow over one another. And that's important because if you realize the oil has to flow through all passages in the engine and its ability or its resistance to flow, how much force it needs to push through those parts, the bearing clearances, through the rocker arms, through the main bearings, the rod bearings, uh, the the the, the pistons uh, may have an oil squirter on the bottom of the piston, the valve train, what have you, uh, the oil galleries through the block. So the, the higher the viscosity of that oil, 
the harder or the more force it's going to need to be pushed through that engine. All right, so we're going to touch back on that in a couple of minutes. Now, when you look at an oil, years ago they had a single viscosity oil, straight 30, straight 40, straight 50. I don't. They probably had straight 20. I don't remember that. And then when they came out with the multi viscosity oils, which was probably sometime in the 1950s into the 1960s, they added the letter W. So let's say if we'll, we'll pick on 15W40 and use that as a common denominator through this show, this part of the show. So people used to think that, the, and many people think that the W means weight, 15 weight dash 40. What the W stands for is winter. It does not stand for weight. And the benefit of a multi-viscosity oil is that it's a chameleon. It acts like two different blends of oil. So in the winter, it'll act like a 15-weight oil, which is an oil with a lower viscosity, and it's not a lower thickness. I'll repeat it. It has the needs. It's easier to push through the engine. It's easier, it's less force to push through the engine and will move quicker with a given force. And then at higher temperatures, it will act like a 40 weight oil, which becomes harder to push through the engine. All right. So the, the W stands for winter and not weight. So if we have, a, so the benefit of a multi-viscosity oil is that it allows the engine to be lubricated properly at both cold temperatures and hotter temperatures and have an oil that will support the loads there versus a single viscosity oil would be akin to like a pesticide that only has reaction on one weed. So if you have a pesticide that's only a grass pesticide, it'll kill anything in the grass family, but it's not going to kill any broadleafs. All right, so the thing is that, so look at this as multiple modes of action in a pesticide. So this is multiple modes of action, two modes of action in the oil as far as its interaction with the parts of the engine dependent upon the weather. Now, so in essence, what will happen is that the oil, the 1540, the oil with the lower viscosity, number 15, and there is an actual quantifier for this. If you will go to API, they give you all the tests and whatever the values. Like I said, they don't just arbitrarily pick a number. It will act like like a thin oil when it is cold, and it will respond like a, a thicker, I, dare I use the wrong term, a higher viscosity oil when it's hot. So they were, prov they, they were designed to provide the best of both worlds. But the rating, the 15W40, does not tell the entire story. And getting back, going to the store, right, you could see there's many different 1540 oils that meet the same SAE and API standard, right? So what is the difference? The guy who says, I'm buying the cheapest stuff that's on sale, I don't give a damn because it's all snake oil, it's the same thing, it meets the same standards. Well, he's only right up to a certain extent, and sadly his pocketbook will eventually pay for it because his engines will wear excessively. So... What would happen, or what you need to recognize, and I'm going to put this very simply, not to belabor you with it, is that numerous factors make oil a premium or just an acceptable lubricant. All right, like anything in life, you could buy you could buy anything. There's all different levels of quality. You could look to buy a tire, a tire for your car, a tire for your tractor. There's many different brands. They're all the same size, but there's different levels of quality and performance. And the same thing happens with oils. And the quality, what makes it a better lubricant, even if it meets the same standards, is based upon the crude oil that they use, the refining process, the additives that they employ, and there's a number of other things. But for this show today, we're just going to be concerned with viscosity, and we're going to be concerned with, uh, later on in the show, what a synthetic oil is. Now, this is when I teach this. This is the example I like to give. So let's say that you're harvesting corn, 
and you, you take two points from the field and record the yield from the monitor, right? So you have uh, you have your son riding with your daughter, and you say, okay, record record the yield on the monitor here, record it here, and they write it down on a piece of paper, all right? So let's say when you went into the field, the opening of the field, it produced 200 bushels per acre. And then in the middle of the field, we had real good ground, everything was good, right? A lot of, there was you know, a, a lot of cross-pollination, what have you. You have 305 bushels per acre. So now, you could make at the coffee shop a very true statement. And you could say the ground around the entry in the field yielded 200 bushels per acre, and in the middle of the field, it yielded 305 bushels per acre. All right? I don't think anybody's going to argue with me with those numbers. But So that's the field's performance, its yield, its performance, right, for those two points. But that, but that tells you nothing about the yield in the other areas of the field. And, you know, to break away for a second, no disrespect, I would say it, is that I think if I were the National Corn Growers Association, the Soybean Growers, what have you, is that I think it's wonderful that these high-yield guys get these numbers in their fields. You know, 500 bushels per acre, 200 bushel beans, whatever it may be, right? But the thing is that I would also like to see what their on-farm averages. And I realize that's usually a five-acre test plot, but the thing basically is you're getting back to my show a couple of weeks ago about volumetric efficiency is that if you're only looking at two points, you're looking at that, then you know that data is accurate for those two points, but it's not accurate for the whole farm. And the same thing is with the oil. So what you need to understand is how that rating comes about. So this is like Paul Harvey used to say, it's the rest of the story. The viscosity rating of the oil is its performance at an assigned temperature for cold and hot. Now, I'm going to give you the standards that I've been working with. They may be slightly outdated. The temperature standards may have changed a couple of degrees either way, but this is this is you know close enough for you to understand. Whether it's 212 or 218 now, it doesn't make any difference. All right. So the cold temperature test. So the the 15W, the winter test, right? The 15W is at zero degrees F. And the hot test, so if you have a 15W40 oil, that means it flows like a 15 weight oil at zero degrees F, and it flows like a 40 weight oil at 212 degrees F. So that is what the multi-viscosity oil is. So we only know its performance at those two temperatures. So it's akin to you looking at the at the yield monitor on the combine. You know at the entry of the field you had 200 bushels per acre, and at this spot in the field you have 305 bushels per acre. But what happened in between? We do not know. All right. So the same things with the oil. We know that the fifth that the that this brand oil that if it's a 15W oil, it's going to have that flow characteristic at zero degrees, whether it's the most expensive oil or the cheapest oil, and it's going to have the other flow characteristic, the 40 weight flow characteristic at zero degrees. I mean, 212 degrees. Excuse me. Yeah. So hot and cold, but we don't know anything else. Now. To get back to Paul Harvey, where's the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story, the full story, is you need something that's called the visometric, V-I-S-O-M-E-T-R-I-C, visometric index chart. And what that will basically do is will plot the oil's performance above and above the the uh, the winter rating and below the hot rating, and then beyond those two, so below zero degrees and above 212 degrees, because most oil runs at 240, 250 today in a crankcase, all right? So you're just saying it's good at two, this is what the number is at 212. So you need a visometric index chart to be able to determine the oil's true performance. The thing is that no one prints that because that is not required by government standards nor is it required by SAE or API. So when you buy a better grade of oil that is made, what I mean by a better grade, a better brand, which is usually indicated by price structure, all right, 
is that it will have more uniform performance and it will have an expanded temperature range and it'll be very linear in its performance and it won't be very digital. And what I mean by that is that you could have an inexpensive 15W40 oil that meets the standards at, at 0 degrees and 212 degrees. That's why they put 15W40 on it, all right? But it skews greatly in the viscosity above and below that temp temperature. And that is where your engine will experience excessive wear. So that is why it is important to use a high-quality oil that has the additive package, the refining the, the, the good base oils, the high-quality base oils, so its performance will not go off the cliff below zero degrees or above or, or above uh, or above 212 degrees. As I have said before uh, on the show is that I kind of got involved with Twitter. I'm not a social media person, no disrespect to it, all right, uh, to get people to know about my website and the show here, and uh, somebody had tweeted out a picture. I don't I don't even know if he was a follower of mine. Maybe they refollowed. I don't know. I don't know. I'm probably saying it all wrong. But anyway, I saw the picture, and it was during that cold spell. And I think it was a Mack engine. It was a uh, it was a big diesel. I think it was. It may have been a Mack. And his I guess he's in the repair business. And the customer started on a real cold day, and when they had the real cold weather out in the Midwest a couple of weeks ago, it's still cold there. But and he ended up here, knock knock knock, and he wiped out the bearings. And he's saying, oh, man, you know, it's an oil flow, it's this, it's that. And it very, may, very, very, very well may have been. But the oil issue may have been because he had, and I don't know this, right, but I'm saying when I was looking at the picture of the bearing that he tweeted out, if that's a proper term, is that he could have had a cheap oil. Let's say it was a 1540 diesel oil. And then it's going to flow like a 15 weight at zero degrees, but what does it flow like at minus 20? And he could have wiped that motor out simply because he had a oil of poor quality that the visometric index chart, which you cannot see, had very poor flow characteristics. Or conversely, let's say, you know, Noah. Noah's 11 years old now. So let's say another four or five years, I don't know when they could drive in Australia, and he's he's running a tractor on the farm, or he's running a semi, bringing grain to town. And uh, Dave hasn't put, his father hasn't put cheap oil in it. And the oil's running 260, 270, 280. What is the flow characteristic is going to be at that particular temperature? Is it going to be thermally stable? We'll be able to take the pressure loads at that temperature. There's a lot of things, I mean, we could do four or five hours on oil viscosity. But the take-home message I want you to recap here is that when you are buying a name brand oil that is made of and made of higher quality additives, higher quality base oil, a more a, a, a better refining process, uh, the thing is that that oil, if you were to be able to see the visometric index chart, that oil will have exemplary performance above and below those set points and will have linear performance. It's not going to go where it goes off the cliff and skews greatly at 213 degrees instead of 212 degrees. So you may have a cheap oil that at 220 degrees jumps down to jumps down to uh, to 20 20 weight viscosity instead of 40 and that's where you get yourself into trouble and you know so many people don't so many farmers don't want to buy and i'm not saying there's not good oils out there there are good aftermarket oils and you know you could tell by by the, the pricing you could tell by the, the company's background do some research i mean there's uh, there's excellent excellent aftermarket oils there's no denying that all right but the thing is that you have to buy a good a good name brand not joe's oil company from hackettstown new jersey but the thing is that uh ray's oil company right but the thing is that uh with this newer equipment and you know, if you're running a John Deere tractor and you you just bought a $600,000 John Deere combine or a $200,000 tractor or you went to auction, you bought a pre-owned piece of equipment that's a couple of years old, you know, I if you run different colors, I know it's a problem and you could buy a good oil, a, a Chevron, a Mobil, Delvac Shell, 
Mobile One, whatever. There's plenty of good oils out there. But keep in mind that when you buy the OE oil, and is that you have the the additive package that that manufacturer wants. So the thing is that are there good oils? Yes. Excellent oils? Yes. I'm not going to say if you didn't buy if you bought a new machine that if you used you know use Chevron in it or or what shell i can't think of names or mobile that there's going to be a problem by no means whatsoever the visometric performance of that oil is going to be superior but then to a cheap oil but what's going to happen is that you're going to have a, a different additive package possibly in the branded oil from the oe manufacturer and that that additive package is you know may affect the seals that are in that engine it may affect you know affect the gaskets in an engine i don't know what it's going to affect so I'm not going to say buyer beware. You, I don't want you to come away from this, and, you know, and, and be turned off and say I got to use this oil. No, use a name brand oil. The thing that you're buying really is the Visometric Index performance of that oil, which is going to be its thermal stability, its ability to handle pressure load, its ability to resist making, uh, creating gunk in the engine, and all of that. But today we're basically talking about viscosity so to recap this right to recap this uh the viscosity of an oil is at two points in temperature it's going to be it's a it's going to be its resistance to flow all right it's going to be its resistance to flow one layer over another how much force is required at zero degrees that's the and the multi-viscosity oil, which everything is today, zero degrees, which is the W, winter, and then at 212 degrees. And the take-home message here is a better brand of oil will have a much broader performance range above and below those set points where your engine really needs it because your engine doesn't stay long at zero other than startup and most of the damage could happen on an engine on startup because the bearings everything is dry and then also afterwards as the engine becomes thermally loaded and starts to uh, build heat that the performance of that oil the what's called the oil wedge and i'll do a show later on about oil wedge is that the performance of the oil for it to be able to to be able to keep the metal metal parts from the bearing and the crank or the bearing and the rod uh separated is what's called the oil wedge it's different than the bearing clearance the bearing clearance may be two and a half thousandths but the oil wedge is much smaller than that and it's that little bit of oil that is keeping those two parts uh from touching and then what will happen is that the visometric index chart and the additives that they put in the oil and the base oil that they use and what have you will will create a product that will able that will allow that oil to be thermally stable and to be able to take the pressures and that support that oil wedge along with a host of other things its ability not to make acids its ability not to build sludge it's there's something called pumpability of the oil cold pumpability something called wettability of the oil that's how quickly it drains from the parts when you shut the engine off or an oil spray and it leaks down that's called wettability and keep in mind that engine oil is also meant to be a coolant it cools the crankshaft it removes heat from the bottom of the pistons especially if it's got oil sprayers it lubricates things anything that there's a lubricant that there's a lubricant that there's movement there's friction friction is heat and oil is used to pull that heat away and that's why engines today use basically a low pressure high volume oiling system because what they want to basically do is keep flooding that bearing, flooding those parts with fresh oil to move the heat away. And prior to the modern oil chemistry, you needed a very high viscosity oil, all right, that it was very hard for it to pump through a, through a crevice, pump, uh, pump through there. And that was the only way that the... That the tribologists knew how to have it sustain the pressure demands to maintain the oil wedge. You look at an NHRA Pro Stock motor now, 499.8 cubic inches, 14-1500 horsepower, 9600 RPM, all right, two carburetors and push rods. The oil that they pour in there looks like water. 
all right but the thing basically is the chemistry today the chemistry that they've learned how to make oil better and the thing is that before we used to have to put this 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 high viscosity oil in to be able to keep those parts separated with that oil wedge you don't need to do that anymore so that's why so many of these new engines have low have 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 low viscosity oils because remember the viscosity is, is its opposition to want to pump to move right over another area and the thing is that when it's cold it could get the oil up to the parts quicker especially with overhead cam engines some big deals a lot of big diesels are overhead cam so you have the oil in the sump when you start that thing you want to get that oil up to the top of that valve train as soon as possible and then a modern oil modern chemistry with the lower viscosities will do that now what we're going to touch on quickly here, because it's very simple, is synthetic oil. Is synthetic, synthetic, synthetic oil better than mineral oil? Yes. Is mineral oil better than synthetic was 30 years ago, mineral oil today? Yes. We keep raising the bar, just like farmers keep raising the yield in their fields. The yield that we have in 2018, the average yield is much more than we had in, in, in 1990 and in 1950 and in 1900. So the oil is getting better. So did the mineral oil get better? Yes. Did the synthetic oil get better? Yes. But what basically happens is that what is a synthetic oil? And a synthetic oil uh simply starts off as a regular mineral oil and what happens is that the term synthetic is misleading since all engine lubricants have their roots in mineral oil oil crude oil pumped from the ground it's what that it's it is what that what happens to that oil which is defined as the base stock right the base stock is the is the oil that's used to make engine oil whether it's synthetic or mineral that allows it to become a synthetic the confusion was similar and to it was to similar to what agriculture is going through with the defining vertical tillage each manufacturer has its own definition of vertical tillage and this guy says well they're not true vertical we're vertical they go like that and they go back and forth so due to this confusion of what truly was a synthetic oil the sae developed a standard which is J357, like the gun 357 Magnum, J357. And that describes the synthetic base stocks before the additives are introduced as chemicals produced directly derived from petroleum base stocks. So what this means is that synthetic lubricants are highly, are highly refined and they use a process that so dramatically changes the molecular structure that they cannot be categorized as mineral anymore. So basically, in essence, they're taking a specific type and grade of mineral oil, they're putting it through a synthesizing process, so we'll say a conversion process, and now the molecular structure has changed so much that you cannot identify it as a mineral oil anymore because it's so highly refined so in essence to make a simple analogy you could have an old rotary dial telephone and you could have the latest smartphone whatever number that is 10 12 who the heck knows i don't follow that stuff but anyway so they're both telephones right you pick them up you go talk to somebody but one is a smartphone and one is a rotary dial phone so in essence that's what happens with a synthetic it's a base crude mineral oil a base stock they call base stock oil a certain high quality base stock and then i'll use the word refined it's actually a synthesizing process it's so highly refined that it re remakes or modifies the molecular structure the, the molecular chain not to get too technical is altered and that's why it's called a synthetic but synthetic oils start with base oils and that process is what's and the molecular structure of a synthetic oil the molecules are smaller so that is why years ago people say hey, you put synthetic oil in the motor it starts to leak and they were correct empirically because the molecular structure was smaller and that would allow it to find leaks that a larger molecule would not find you know just like if you look at soil certain certain nutrients in the soil are immovable or, or they don't really move much other things leach very easily so it's the size of the molecular structure so just like the um, you know just like the uh, calcium molecule is larger in soil is, is 
is larger than the magnesium molecule. So if you have your calcium-magnesium ratio or magnesium-calcium ratio, however you want to state it, off in your base saturation, you have too much mag, you got very fine little molecules all packed together, and then you have you have a soil that compacts easily, that uh, that doesn't drain well and what have you. Now you get the calcium in it when you put larger molecules in it, and it makes pathways for the water to go down and for the soil structure to be different. So same thing happens with the synthetic oil. So what does this mean to you? What this means is that when you use a synthetic oil, what you're getting is an oil that's more thermally stable. You're getting an, an oil that has more of a detergent-like effect for it. And most importantly, you have an oil that's, go, that's going to have a better visometric index, its performance at different temperatures above and below the uh, the test ratings of 15 W40, we'll use that. 15 meaning zero degrees, 40 meaning 212 degrees. You're gonna have a you're gonna have an oil that's gonna flow much better at minus 20. You're gonna have an oil that's more thermally stable and able to withstand withstand uh, the oil wedge on the bearings, the crank bearing and the rod bearing at high temperatures, right? 260, 207 degrees. Hey, you're you're cutting corn, you're pulling a chisel plow, you're pulling whatever hot weather you're working that motor, you got that high thermal load in there and so basically in essence a synthetic oil has is not voodoo what it basically done is that it's taken the oil and made it better and I am a firm believer in synthetic oils. It's not that I have anything against mineral oils, but I run synthetic and everything. I'm a mobile one guy. No disrespect to anybody else. I buy it because it's so easily and readily available. I can go in town. I can go to Walmart. I can go to an auto parts store. I can go to a supermarket and get it if I need it. If I'm traveling and I need oil, I could buy it. So I run synthetic mobile one in my lawnmower. I load it in my lawn tractor. I run it in my farm equipment. I had a four-stroke weed whacker. I ran it in that. I run it on my power washer. I love it. I love it. And you know, and if you also take take a quart of synthetic oil, a good brand of synthetic oil, and put it in the refrigerator, and 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 put a quart of of, of mineral oil in the refrigerator and get it down to two or three or four degrees below zero, five degrees. Most freezers, I say, put it in a freezer, not refrigerator. Just don't tell your wife you're doing it. But anyway, uh, and you'll see that even though it'll be a 1540 oil, that the synthetic oil will have, have greater flowability at that, that 10 degrees below zero and flow easier, flow easier as uh, at that temperature than the other oil because that because that rating is it has to have a minimum flow at that. If it flows better, it doesn't get quantified in that 15W40. It's that visometric index chart that would show that. So to recap all of this, viscosity is not the thickness of the oil, but it's a, the, the amount of energy in the way it flows over a surface when there's oil on both parts, which would be like a, a, a bearing is that you want to buy the best oil you can. You want to use a multi-viscosity oil. And if you don't mind spending the extra money, then synthetic oils are definitely the way to go. If you have an older piece of equipment and you bought it, has a lot of hours on it, I probably would not waste the extra money to put a synthetic oil in it right now. So uh, at this particular point, I would use probably a good brand mineral oil and uh, that has a good visometric index performance based upon the brand, and I would call it quits because at that particular point, if it's got 5,000 hours and you bought it and it always had mineral oil in it, I mean, whatever. The wear is there, whatever. It's, I don't think it's going to add any life. But, you know, years ago, you used to have a Wonder Bread commercial. They say it's the Wonder Bread years, a young person. Well, when you get that newer piece of equipment, that newer car, whatever, I would definitely run a synthetic of the of the classification that that manufacturer wants. Alrighty, if you have any questions about this, please feel free to contact me at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. And I went through it fast and I apologize for that, but we're running out of time here on the show and I want to get this gentleman's question. So, you know, keep in mind that special delivery is brought to you by Firestone Ag. And you as I said in the beginning, you know, Harvey Firestone was a farmer, so they have that 23-degree tread bar, and that's, you know, that's the industry standard. That's the high watermark as far as a conventional type of tire is concerned, and that is was designed and developed by Firestone. So when it comes time to look at tires, if you're over at Commodity Classic, please... 
please give Firestone a look. And like I always try to say, is that if you're honest with yourself, the tire may be a couple of dollars more, but they last so many years, your soil will be happier. And remember, the soil is the lifeblood of your farm. So trust it only to Firestone. So the question I have, and I'll read it to you, it says, Hi, my name is Arthur, and I farm in Western Tennessee. I enjoy your radio show, and I have a question. What uh, what can I do to increase water pump life on our engines? Most are hard to change, and they end up leaking through the vent. Also, what is the vent purpose of the vent? Well, thank you, first of all, uh, Arthur, for listening and for writing in, and I gladly, gladly appreciate uh, you, you know, tuning in from Western Tennessee, and that's a beautiful part of the country. But anyway, you're out. You're probably out near the Missouri border someplace. But uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Danny Stevens, lives down in uh, outside of uh, Haytai, Missouri. He farms down in Haytai with his son. A good guy. So I'm kind of quasi familiar with your neck of the woods. But anyway, to answer your question, two things that you could do to increase water pump life. All right. The one thing basically is to keep the coolant fresh in your engine and whether it's a gasoline or a diesel if it's a larger engine uh diesel and you're going to use test strips make sure it has all the proper additives because as the coolant starts to become alkaline it becomes an acid and the additive package goes away it's going to start to deteriorate the seal so keeping fresh coolant in or fresh coolant and or properly additized coolant is one of the biggest things that you could do to increase the water pump life and historically most water pumps the only thing that's going to fail with them is usually the seal and then the bearing afterwards so if you could keep that seal from leaking then and you keep the corrosion at bay then that water pump will usually last the life of the engine or beyond so that is the first thing you do the second thing that you could do is do not raise the engine rpm too high when the engine is cold and the thermostat is closed. Now, I've, I did a show a while back about not idling an engine to warm up, so I don't want you to think I'm saying that. But you don't want to have an engine when it's cold and have the RPM go up to 3,000, 4,000 RPM on, a, let's say, like a smaller gasoline engine on a car or a pickup truck or on a larger diesel engine, go up to 2,000 RPM, what have you. You want to start that engine and put it under load and drive it away or put whatever the load is. You're using it to org or something. Uh, and it's standing still, but you want the load to be put on it and the RPM not to be too high. And the simple reason for that being is that when the thermostat is closed, the coolant circulates through the bypass system. It could be a bypass hose or bypass port. And if you raise the RPM too high, you cannot, it's like trying to, it can't move the coolant. It's trying like the, if you were to suck a can of soda and you're closing up the straw, it's going to it's going like that and it actually cavitates the pump which destroys the pump but it creates a a, a very very uh high level or i should say it creates a a great depression a very a, a great differential in pressure so let's say a vacuum so whereas the atmospheric pressure is high and inside the water pump at the seal the pressure is extremely low so that differential in pressure has the atmosphere pushed through the seal and it actually starts to violate the seal. And as it starts to violate the seal, I mean, not if it happens one time, if you do this continuously, the seal wears and it starts to leak and it either drips out of the vent hole. Another part of your question is, what is the vent hole for? The vent hole serves two purposes. Number one is to, if the water pump starts to leak, for it to go someplace and hopefully extend the life of the bearing and, and, and go and be able to come out and the other the, the other purpose of the vent hole is when they push that bearing in there when they press that bearing in there so the air has some place to escape but the thing is that the biggest cause of water pump failure is is high rpm and you have to look at this you know for the engine i mean 2000 rpm on a gasoline engine or pickup truck is not high 2000 rpm on a on a big diesel at red lines at 2500 is high so high rpm when the engine is cold and the thermostat is closed and it's only circulating the the coolant through the bypass uh, by the bypass circuit and if you keep the rpm down like i say but i don't want 
margin to sit and idle it, but keep it down. Even in that show, I said drive it away easily, is that you will have that cool and built temperature, that thermostat will open, and then you will not expose that water pump seal to that high level of pressure differential which ends up violating that seal and wearing it once that seal becomes violated and wear it starts to leak so hopefully that answered your question and i want to thank you so much for writing in and if it didn't do you want me to explain it more you know once again please feel free to contact me so listen but when you guys uh if you listen to the show this week i'll be at commodity classic so i'll stick my hand up and wave and if you happen to be there once again please stop by at the firestone ag booth and i want to thank Thank you so much for listening and i want to i greatly appreciate it i'm honored and for those that do write in contact me i greatly appreciate that because you remember the old commercials the maytag man that when you are in this field you're like the maytag man and you and all i do want to know is that i don't want any accolades i don't want anything i want to be able to feel that that i'm using the abilities and knowledge that the good Lord has given me to help you, the American farmer and rancher, and my beloved America. Because remember, no matter what anybody says, is that America cannot be strong without healthy and profitable farms. So thanks again for listening. You have a blessed week, and I'll tell you next next time about Commodity Classic. <laughs>